Well, welcome. Um, I, I don't have, I have one slide, so um, I, I'm, a, I'm kind of a one-trick pony with these slides. I, I had more than one slide once, and that might be the, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but um, we're going to be continuing on in our Sermon on the Mount series that I get to do when I, when I have an opportunity to speak. And um, before we get into it, I just want to give us a brief reminder of where we are uh, in the, the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and so Jesus is giving this sermon, this, this conversation, to a group of people gathered on a hillside. Uh, and, and that group of gathered are, people gathered are kind of misfits and outcasts. They're the sick, they're the poor, they're the needy, um, and they're folks who might not have a normal positive experience in the religious culture of their time. Uh, and so Jesus is talking to this group of people, and one of the things that Jesus seeks to do with the Sermon on the Mount is give the like groundwork and the ground thinking on what the kingdom is, what the kingdom of God is going to be like. Uh, and when Jesus does that, he talks about the kingdom as if it's something to come one day in the future, but he also talks about it as if it's something that we can begin to experience and participate in now on this earth here. Uh, and so those, those are some of the things that are going to go into um, this next section on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and if you would, if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, uh, and we're going to be starting in verse 21. So if you want to turn there, uh, and as you do so, I want to remind us just of what Jesus just said, because this is, this is a sermon in a hole that Jesus gave. So he didn't, he didn't give a portion of it, go away for a week, and then come back like we do. That's, that's not how this sermon was given. It was given in one sitting, start to finish, and then now we, nowadays, like take it and chunk it up and do all sorts of stuff. Um, and so uh, Jesus has just talked about the law. He has just talked about fulfilling the law, and he, he clears up this kind of, misunderstanding that they had that Jesus, when he spoke about the law, he spoke and they thought, oh, maybe he's trying to get rid of it. And Jesus has just cleared up, no, I, that's not it. I, I have not come to get, away, get rid of it. It's good. Rather, I've come to fulfill it. That's what he tells them. And so what we're going to look at today comes right after that. And as we're going to see, that idea that Jesus has fulfilled the law, that something about how Jesus lived and, and was living fulfills the law, that's going to be super important for today. Um, he has also uh, just come off of, at, before that, talking about being salt and light, and he told them that the, the things you do when you're salt and light and you go out in the community and, and into your homes and families and whatever, the way you live ought to point toward your Father in heaven. In other words, when people see the good things you do, they should see it and give glory to your Father in, who is in heaven. Uh, and I believe that's in verse uh, 16 that he says that. And so with those two ideas, that the things we do have consequence around the people around us, and that Jesus has fulfilled the law, Jesus is going to move into a new section where he's going to kind of give a, a basic moral framework for the kingdom. Uh, and so we're going to read, starting in verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool 
will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you, are off, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and first go. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. I pray that as we approach, maybe not the most cuddly of passages, um, that we would have grace, but we would not diminish truth. I pray that as we look at these three areas of our, of our lives, um, that we would do so in, in light of Jesus, that we would, that we would put these Jesus-colored glasses on as we look at these things. I pray that, that the Holy Spirit would move us this morning, help my words to get out of the way. In your name we pray. Amen. So Jesus introduces this next section on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and he uses a new format. So uh, he, he has been kind of, he did the Beatitudes, and he did the Blessed, Blessed, Blesseds, and then he used Salt and Light, and then he cleared up a fulfilled law thing. And now he's going to use this new format, and we're going to look at this format again next week. Uh, and, and this format is this thing where he says, you have heard it said, or someone a long time ago, or maybe your tradition has taught you, and then he gives some, some statement that they have heard in their religious upbringing, in their scriptures, that type thing. And then he turns, he says, but now I say to you today, this is the format that Jesus is using. Uh, and, and we already know that Jesus is not saying, you have heard it said, and this is bad, so now I say to you today. That's not what he's saying here, because he's already told them, I haven't come to do away with it. Rather, he's saying somewhere in between you have heard it said, and I say to you today, there is a fulfillment. And so what Jesus is saying comes out of that fulfillment of the law. Uh, he builds on it. And, and what I want to note is for someone to take either the law or, or Jewish tradition at that time and take it and say, yes, but now I say and set that up as at least as valuable, if not more valuable, that would have been a big no-no in their religious culture. And a person who, who would do that is at, at the least claiming to be a prophet directly from God. Or more so, they're, they're claiming to have some claim over the law given in order to speak on that law as an authority. 
And so when Jesus is, is making this, you've heard it said, but now I say to you, he, he's, he's doing so out of a place of authority. He has the authority to make this shift in the law. Um, and so when we're talking about the kingdom, he's going to make these moral case studies. Uh, I want to note that, that this week and next week we're going to be exploring a few of these. It's not an exhaustive list. It, Jesus doesn't like give the, there's like 600 and something commandments in the Old Testament. He doesn't break them all down in the Sermon on the Mount, mostly because he'd be there all day. But this is a, a case study to give us basic guidance for how we interact in the kingdom. Um, and, and this week we're going to look at anger, lust, and divorce. And if you're like me, you go, well, could you not have picked something a little more lighthearted, Jesus? Um, because it's tough. And I, I want to start with, with that. It's tough. But Jesus, I believe, chose these issues and the issues we're going to look at next week because he knows <laughs> they get to the heart of us. They, they get in there and they, they start to pick around and, and say, well, what's going on? You, you got something you need to deal with. And these were things that those seated before Jesus were dealing with. They probably had had interactions where they were told, ah, oh, you know, things at home aren't good, so just get a certificate of divorce. It's fine. Jesus is speaking to the people seated, and it, and it makes its way to us today and affects us in a way that only Jesus can. They address heart issues and how the kingdom relates to those heart issues and still holds the laws valuable and says it has been fulfilled. And so, members of the kingdom, people changed by Jesus, here's the kingdom standard in charge regarding anger. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I, that is Jesus, says to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The law says, and likely the religious leaders taught, don't murder. And if you do murder, you're going to face judgment for the murder. You shall not murder is commandment six from the Ten Commandments. It's one of the big ten. Uh, and, and being liable to the judgment, this idea... It is added on later in, in the book of Leviticus and Numbers, and, and it's expanded on, like, well, if you're not supposed to murder, what happens if you do? And they made laws about, well, you need to face judgment. Uh, and the law calls us not to kill each other. And for most of us, that's not too hard. <laughs> Generally, moderately easy to not kill one another. It's a good law. It's one we still have today in our culture. Don't murder. But Jesus goes further than this, and he gets at the heart of, of what this law is about, because like I said, it's, generally it's moderately easy not to do that. And so this, this law, it's got to get, what is the point? Is it just like, well, you do whatever you want as long as you don't kill? Because there's something more going on. And so Jesus gets to that something more. He gets to the heart of it. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. He uses the same language. If you murder, you're liable to judgment. And if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. He uses the same 
phrase. In this sense that not murdering, that's good. To not kill somebody is a very good thing. Gold star, good job. But we can do better. We can go further than that. Just leaving it there and checking the box and saying, no, I didn't do that today, <laughs> thank God. Uh, we can go farther than that. And that's what Jesus is trying to get the people of the kingdom to do. He's like, don't just leave it at this. Go beyond it. Simply not killing was not the point. It's not, that was not the point. He starts, Jesus starts by talking about the law. And he starts by introducing this idea of murder. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. And then notice after he says that, he rarely talks about murder anymore in this entire anger section. It's kind of a nudge that maybe this is about more than just murder. Maybe there's something else. Living in a fulfilled law means going further and getting at that something else. If you murder according to the law, you're liable to judgment. If you're angry with your brother according to Jesus, you're liable to judgment. I can't stress that enough. I should note, uh, real quick, some manuscripts, so when we start talking about like when the text gets to here, Matthew, some manuscripts of Matthew include the phrase angry without cause after angry. Um, and so it's very likely that in Jesus' tradition, it's this idea that it's not just like a feeling of anger. It's, it's anger and holding on to it and what it builds up to and what it causes you to do and feel and say and think about your brother or sister. That's the anger that Jesus is talking about. Jesus himself got angry. But it was a, it was a well-placed and useful anger that was not harmful to his brother and sister. And so what Jesus says after this is going to flesh out this idea of anger. He says that anyone who insults his brother is liable to the council. The idea for this, this idea of insult is, is rakah, um, it's a weird, like, equivalent. We don't really have, but it's, it's something that's defaming, slanderous against somebody. So if you're angry to the point where you would lash out verbally and harm someone verbally with your words, Jesus says, you've broken the law, or at least the heart of it. He builds on it more. He says, if, if somebody says, you fool, we hear that and we go, like, I've been called a lot worse. Uh, but the point is this. If, if your anger makes you publicly or privately defame your brother or sister's character or who they are or what other people are going to think about them, Jesus says you're liable. You have broken the heart of the law. And so the old way was about more than murder. It was about loving our brothers and sisters enough to nip anger in the bud before it leads to senseless anger, slander, abuse, harshness with one another. This is what Jesus seems to intend when he tells them if you realize a dispute. Notice he doesn't say if you realize a dispute or if you realize your, your brother has anger with you, they're angry, so they're already wrong. If this was about never being angry, that we, Jesus could end it right there. This is about more than just being angry as well. 
He says, if you realize a dispute, he says, leave your sacrifice right where you are and go deal with it. So in their culture, a couple things, because I don't know about you, but it's been some time since I offered a sacrifice. So uh, in their culture, they would regularly bring sacrifice to the temple, to the altar, and offer this animal up as sacrifice in their religious system. And often that sacrifice was alive up until it got on the altar. Leviticus gives rules about how the sacrifice was to lose its life. And so, uh, if you leave it before the altar, it could wander off or fly away. Jesus knows what he's talking about. He says, yeah, you could lose your offering. Go deal with it. Another portion of this is people often had to travel hours or a day's plus journey to Jerusalem, to the altar, to the temple, to make this offering. And they get there with their animal and they, they walk it into the, the altar and they get there and they get ready. And, oh man, I know I wronged them and they're angry with me. You gotta go back. Hours long, days long journey back home and settle it. That's what Jesus says. It's costly. It's not easy, and he knows it. Same for us. Like, if we have disputes and angers and squabbles with people, it's not fun to deal with it. <laughs> it's hard. And Jesus gets it. He says, but you have to do it. As members of the kingdom, this is, this is the standard. In other words, love between people is of more value than offering or sacrifice or religious system or even your own comfort or ease. Dealing and squashing the beef with anger is of more value than all that. That's, that's the kingdom standard. To fail to pursue this, he goes on to talk about what that looks like, means simply to rub up against the things of the kingdom. You have the kingdom standard, and if you go, yeah, but it's fine. It's going to get dealt with. You're going to be hitting up against that kingdom standard, and it's not going to feel good, and it's not going to produce something good between you and other members of the kingdom. And so, as Jesus says it, if you choose to not pursue those kingdom standards, you're going to maybe have feelings that, ah, I, would be, I would be more at home in Gehenna outside the kingdom. He's not saying that if you are angry, you get booted. He's saying if, if you have a heart that is changed by Jesus, but that same heart doesn't acknowledge, I need to deal with anger and try to make things right between my brother and sister. He's saying you're going to rub up against the kingdom standard. And it's not going to feel good. And I think when Jesus said this, many of the people there were, were angry. And they were like, why do I have to deal with it? Why can't they? And Jesus says, go. Take care of it. I would hope to think that maybe even people sitting there listening to him got up and took off. Because if you ignore it, Jesus says you're accountable. Notice that when, when he starts talking about these offerings, he says, if you're offering your gift 
and there remember that your brother has something against you? So it's not just, well, did I, did I do something or am I actively angry with somebody? It is, have I done something to make somebody else angry? This is getting proactive now. This is getting outside of our own feelings and being aware and loving towards the people around us enough to say, is how I'm behaving causing anger in someone else? Jesus says you're on the hook for that. Because if you ignore it, you're accountable. And unkempt and unproductive anger, it violates the law of the kingdom, the law of love. And so, in regards to Jesus' teaching on anger, we could say that the sixth commandment rightly says, you shall not murder. But Jesus says that if you're angry without cause, or you're abusive, or you're degrading to your fellow person, or if we give that person to be any of those things with us, and we fail to live out the fulfillment of the sixth commandment, and we don't try to deal with it, we have failed to love them as we ought to as citizens of the kingdom. Love for our neighbors is more important than religious observance or ease or sacrifice or the things we do. Or, man, it's going to be really tough this week to talk to that person because I know they're going to be upset with me. Love and unity are more valuable than that. And so Jesus challenges us to do those things. Go deal with it. How are we doing? Um... Because unfortunately, um, that was the easy one. From anger, Jesus continues, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Notice he uses the same formula. You've heard it was said, but now I say to you. He's doing the same thing. Um, and you've heard in the law, so the law, this is commandment number seven, says don't commit adultery. And I think we can agree again, that's a good law. <laughs> but Jesus again moves into the fulfillment of that law. What is not committing adultery really about? What is at the heart of it? And he says that if someone looks at someone else with lustful intent in their hearts, they've already committed the adultery. All right. So, like anger, we need to talk about um, what this phrase, lustful intent, means. Literally, that phrase, lustful intent, when it's translated, it's translated as like almost the same word twice. It's like this longing to lust after or looking in order to with the product to produce lust. Um, in our English language, it's the idea of staring and ogling. This is not seeing and noticing beauty. It's like, oh. and then it's everything that happens after that. 
That's what Jesus is addressing here. The lust Jesus is speaking against is prolonged, intentional lust designed and with the goal of producing feelings that a person should not have about somebody else. That's what Jesus is talking about. He says prolonged lusting and staring and ogling over another person is the equivalent of committing adultery in our hearts. And that is because the way lust affects a person inwardly, it sears their conscience. It affects how they relate to other people. Much like an affair sears one conscience and affects how you relate to your spouse. When someone lusts after someone else, it diminishes their encounter with other people in the future. And you might hear that and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, that's not in there. So Hunter, you're, you're yes. But here, here is why I get to this conclusion. Because when we lust after someone, we set them up as an object. And it degrades who they are as a person. They become a, a person created in the image of God and we set them up as a thing for our own enjoyment. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's like, stop it. In future encounters then, you're going to be tempted to view that person or people like them as objects again. Because I did it once. Had a positive feeling. In the kingdom... Every person is valued and we ought not diminish a person down to anything less than who they are as a full person. That's what Jesus wants from us. We do not diminish people down to anything less than they are as a full person. Because that's what lust does. It says, I don't, I don't really care about who you are or what you care about. Lust breaks unity with relating between two people. It makes future interactions with those people shrouded in veneer of objectification. You carry that into the next encounter. Jesus says that prolonged intention, lusting after another person, affects our hearts the same way an affair does. And we might hear that and we go, but okay, but it's not, not the same. Like, how serious can this really be? Um, and, and I would say moderately serious, because um, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, lop it off. <sighs> Woof. <laughs> um, first, Jesus tells them, if you're angry, leave your offering, go hours to a day's journey back, you could lose your offering, and deal with it. And here he says, deal with lust. And a couple notes. Jesus is not calling us to self-harm or mutilation. That's not what he's doing. Rather, Jesus is setting these up to note how serious this is. It's kind of a, like, attention. Make sure you're listening to this one. That's kind of what he's doing. Because... What he wants us to feel, in the same way that he gives it to us with, with what he taught with anger, he wants us to feel that personal discomfort and going through the, the challenges to overcome lust 
are of way more value than leaning into it. That's what he says. Second, your eye and your hand do not cause you to sin. They might be the means by which you do sin, but they do not cause you to sin. Rather, sin and, and sinful hearts cause us to sin. And, and I do believe Jesus is, is giving a direct call for us to deal with that. He himself is the way we deal with it. Jesus is saying if we have to deal with the source of the sin, or namely let Jesus deal with it, there are better perhaps, like if, if he really means like cut your hand off, he could have listed a number of things that a person could deal with in that way. That's not the point. In discussing lust, the eye is the gateway to it. So he uses the eye as the example. And in their culture, often these, these laws about lust also had to do with the things you do to another person after you lust. And so he introduces the idea of the hand. Because to Jesus, if you lust after someone and it causes you to go harm them in some way, absolutely not. Because again, in, in the kingdom, people are valued and they are safe. That view of another person, that they're an object, it is not congruent with a kingdom standard of love. It's not. And so if you desire, if we desire to hold on to that, we're going to come button up against the standard of the kingdom. And, and we're not going to like it. So, about lust, we could say that the seventh commandment says not to commit adultery. But, if you objectify a fellow image bearer by lusting after them, or if after doing so, you are led to assault them or yourself in some way, you are breaking the law of love because you have failed to love them fully. You should seek to deal with the source of your sin. Even when it is difficult or uncomfortable or makes you have to break a habit. Love for our fellow people is of higher value than comfort or desire or pleasure. And in the kingdom, we don't lust after people. It's a higher standard, indeed. One more for this week. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Before moving on, I, I want to just make one note about how messy and pervasive sin is. It's frustrating. Because in Jesus' time, there had grown to be this custom amongst some Jewish groups uh, that they took Moses' words from God regarding divorce uh, and granting certificates of divorce, and they took that, and they kind of boiled it down to just this little little saying, which is, 
If you want to divorce your wife, present her with a certificate of divorce. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, uh, that's where they get this. Uh, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it on her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man may, uh, hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the second man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land, and the Lord your God has given you in his inheritance. So if we read Deuteronomy 24 and we walk away with the idea that, well, if you want to get a divorce, all you got to do is present the certificate, I think we've moved away from Deuteronomy 24 a bit. I really do. Because Deuteronomy 24, when Moses gave this law from God, it was designed first to set up some standard for marriage. Like, notice, it's like, well, if they want to be somebody else's wife, they're husband and wife of one person at a time, it seems. The second thing is, it was actually supposed to restore some honor to the woman. Because in their culture, notice who's doing the divorcing. It's the man every time. Because women were not allowed to pursue that. And so in Deuteronomy, it's saying, listen, if this lady is going to be married and divorced by these guys who seem to just be able to marry and divorce them, then she's not going to have to go back and do a second round of marriage to the first guy because he already, he already said, I don't want you around. Deuteronomy restores some sort of agency and honor to the woman who in their culture often didn't have that. And they took that and they said, yeah, just give them a certificate. It's fine. No. <laughs> it became practice for some men to divorce their wives for any reason. Bad cooking. Certificate. Maybe they don't look the way they did when you first met them. Certificate. I'm just not happy. Certificate. And if, and if you hear that, and you think, is that not how divorce works? No. Notice Jesus does not say, no one should ever get a divorce. Ever. He himself gives an opening to, if, if the relationship is unloving, and there's infidelity, and later Paul talks about unsafety, there's grounds. So this is about something more. No one likes divorce. And Jesus says that this view of divorce, this certificate view, it's unloving to oneself, one's spouse, and one's ex's future spouse. Because sin is messy. No one likes divorce. And, and Jesus acknowledges if staying married is unloving or dangerous, then it's permissible. But notice he doesn't say it's encouraged. It's permissible. 
the goal again being we go back to anger and lust and we say, do, are we going to deal with maybe the things that are leading up to this? But it is permissible. I should also note, we don't get married with plans to get divorced. If we did, we probably wouldn't get married. We get married with plans and intentions to stay married. That's a lot of what those vows are about. And Jesus raises a standard, a kingdom standard for marriage as a lasting union between two people. He focuses on the man as the one who is accountable to this. Because in their culture, the man was the one who was calling all the shots with this stuff. Women in their culture, again, were not permitted to get a divorce. And I honestly think when Jesus says on the grounds of sexual immorality, he's looking at the guys on that hillside going, it's permissible for your wife to leave you on this. I really think Jesus is giving agency to some women here. He puts men on blast and, and heats their section of the crowd uh, to restore some cultural honor to the women, which again was one of the goals of Deuteronomy. He's returning to what it was about. No one likes divorce. I'll say it again. And most people don't get married with divorce in mind. I want to also say that most people in our culture have been affected by divorce in some way. And if you have been, I'm sorry. It's incredibly hard. And the good news of our Jesus is there's still a place for you and them in the kingdom. And that kingdom still has a high view of marriage. So, about divorce, we could say, the Torah gave grounds for divorce on infidelity and arguably unloving situations. But God's intention for marriage is lifelong union. Sin affects our marriages. And in marriage, we ought to do our best to uphold the honor of our spouse. Jesus says divorce is permissible in some situations. But divorce is not for personal gain or our feelings. It should not be sought on a whim and it should be a last resort after we have sought to deal with what has brought us to that point. Because viewing marriage and divorce in a way that's, eh, I'll just do it. It is ultimately unloving to the person we are married to. And will affect any future union we or that person is a part of. Because sin is messy. This anger 
lust and divorce. It's part one of the, the moral standards of the kingdom. And Jesus displays his authority as one who knows the law more so than any other person who has walked on this earth. And he both addresses misconceptions about the law in their time and gives a new standard for people changed by Jesus, members of the kingdom, to pursue. We look forward to a day when anger never leads us to harm or abuse or say anything bad about somebody else. We look forward to that day. And we can begin to practice Jesus' words about anger now to produce that bit of the kingdom here. We look forward to a day when all interactions are free of lust. And we can begin to take Jesus' words and practice them now to create a little bit of that kingdom here. We look forward to a day when our commitments to marriage are unaffected by sin. And we can begin to practice Jesus' words about marriage today to create that field, the kingdom here. It is a good and high kingdom standard, and it's one we all fail to live up to. Sin builds on itself. These three issues, they're not unrelated. They're very much related. Jesus knows that we're not always going to live up to this standard. He knows it. <laughs> Literally why he came. But he gives us this kingdom standard. Nonetheless, he does not say, oh, they're not going to make it, so I better set the bar. He raises it. He says, you, you can do this. And when you discover that you cannot, you will see your need for me. That's what Jesus is doing. He's preparing their hearts for well, how do we get into this kingdom? That's why Jesus came, to live out the standard of the kingdom so that through him we're no longer subject to the law and we have a higher standard. Jesus accomplished that for us in full he lived out the standard and he accomplished and, and like fulfilled it for us on the cross. He paid the price. He paid the price for us not being able to. And that is that, that sacrifice and our faith in Jesus for doing so. That's what we remember when we, when we come to communion.